Hello and welcome to Servant's Heart Chapel. I am Pastor Daryl, and I hope today's episode is a special blessing to you. Well, we are back in Romans after five months. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter chapter 11. This was kind of awkward to restart this right here at this place. I wish I had been able to at least get through chapter 11 when I when before we began Advent last year, but it is what it is. Uh, because chapter 11 kind of culminates in, in, in the case Paul is making in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And what he's doing in, in, in what he did in those first 11 chapters uh, is, is, a, uh, is analyze the relationship between God, us, and sin. Or really, the relationship between God and us and how sin and righteousness affect that relationship. And, and what, it do, what it takes to satisfy God's righteousness. Uh, and and how we can often be wrong. Paul talked, you know, talked to uh, the Gentiles and said, "You're all wrong. Uh, living the way you you have, you have you got it wrong. This is not what God wants of you." And then he turned to the Jewish people and said, "You got it wrong. This is not what God wants of you." I uh, and and sets that case. And we're going to wrap that up here in chapter eleven today. And then we'll begin chapter 12. Through chapter 12, through most of the rest of Romans, it really answers the, the you know, we establish this relationship, right? This situation. We, we establish reality with God. And, and ch- chapter 12, for, for nearly the rest of Romans, kind of answers the question, so what? What now? And, and so we'll... We'll be getting in some really interesting stuff the rest, uh, but today we're going to kind of wrap things up with with uh, with this. If you if you recall, chapter ten, um, Paul talked about how righteousness is by faith alone, and then how Israel rejected that idea. Then Paul gets into chapter eleven which is really just finishing up chapter 10. Chapter 10 and chapter 11, uh, you know, we tried to, when we divided the Bible, we tried to keep it somewhat consistent. But really, chapter 10 and 11 could have been one big chapter. Uh, Paul talks about in chapter 11 that uh, Israel's rejection and God's Israel's rejection of God and then God turning and rejecting Israel is not fi- the final answer. It's not the final thing that's going to happen. They're not without hope. And that can tell us a lot about how God interacts with us too and how we see how God treats Israel. In this chapter, we're going we're to talk a lot about God's grace. Rejected God's grace. This idea that you know, uh, 
we're saved by faith and not of works. But is there anything more wonderful than, than the reality of God's grace? I don't know why someone would want it to be different. It is so much easier just knowing that, that if I just put my trust in Christ, that I don't have to worry about if I've done enough to make it to heaven. So much in the, those other religions in the world and, and false Christian religions rely so much on what you do and, and you work and work your whole life and just hope you've done the right thing to make it. It has to wear on a person and be discouraging. But if we just trust in the Lord, He takes us as we are. <clears throat> Two or three years before the death of I, the death of John Newton, the one who penned Amazing Grace. If you don't know his backstory, I suggest you reading read his biography. He was a scoundrel before he was saved. But two or three years before, before his death, an aged friend and brother in the ministry called, him, called on him at breakfast. And family prayer followed, and the portion of Scripture for the day was read to him. In it occurred the verse, By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. After reading this text, he uttered this. He had this to say. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and would cling to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, I shall put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God I am what I am. God takes us as we are. And so with that thought in mind, let's delve into chapter 11, beginning with the first verse. Paul says, I ask then, as God, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So in the previous verses, we, he showed how Israel rejected God. Question begs the question, has God rejected Israel? And he said, nope. And he said, I, I'm an Israelite. And God has not rejected me. God doesn't reject people, but he does allow disconnection from our rejection. For every person in, in a person's life, in relation to God, either we will say, thy will be done to God, or God will say, thy will be done to us. In verse 2, uh, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? That word foreknew, he planned for, he, he worked with, there was a value in his relationship from God's perspective. God valued the people of Israel and still does. And because God valued them, he's not just going to throw them away. But before we get into what Paul had to quote from the situation with Elijah, I thought it'd be good to kind of delve over First uh, Kings chapter 19. At this point, Elijah just had a huge success against the prophets of Baal, the false god on Mount Carmel. He showed everybody who the real God was. And Queen Jezebel was pretty upset about that and told him that she was going to kill him. And so he ran for his life. Chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She was talking about the dead prophets because they killed them all. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness, and he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him, and the angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his hand was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. Some pretty strong winds here, but I haven't seen anything shattered yet. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone left, and they're looking for me to take my life. He just tells the same thing over again, doesn't he? 
When the Lord said, then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint uh, Hazel as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And uh, Elisha, son of Naphet from Abim, uh, wow. Abelmeloa. Okay. Then Jehu went, will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel and Elisha, will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah, I. As we come back to Romans 11, uh, Elijah is discouraged and he's, he's like, God, they have all rejected you. I'm the only one left who hasn't rejected you. And that wasn't true, right? There were 7,000 who had not rejected God. Because they didn't reject God, God didn't reject them and God preserved them. So going back to verse 3 in chapter 11, Lord, they have, Elijah, Paul is quoting Elijah, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. What was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed to Baal. I have kept those who have kept themselves with me. I want to tell you today that God will keep you. Whatever situation you're in, whatever you're facing, whatever challenges you're facing, God will keep you if you'll just keep yourself with Him. Verse 5, in the same way then there is at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. So he's telling, just like then, God preserved, now God preserves Chosen by grace. Grace is unmerited kindness. You don't deserve it. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but there's kindness. It's like the preacher who walks 70 miles to, to George Washington to beg for the pardon of a man who was about to be put to death. Washington declined and said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going I'm, I'm to pardon your friend. He's like, my friend? That man is my enemy. He he's talk, constantly speaks evil of me. And Washington said, well, that's different. He will be pardoned. That's grace. To walk 70 miles to save the life of someone who hates you. Unmerited kindness. Not earned, not owed. And how God, this is how God responds to sinners and how also we should respond to sinners as Christ's followers. We don't need to give the world any more ammunition than they already have. They do everything they can to disparage Christ's followers. And to show the world how terrible we are. 
I'm reminded of a, an airman who was a Christian and, and did not cuss and absolutely hated profanity. In fact, she would go out of her way to rebuke anybody who, who said a cuss word uh, around her at all. To even go as far as if she heard somebody on the other side of the aircraft hangar say a bad word, she would beeline right to them and tell them they need to stop it. I bet you can imagine what they thought of her. They hated her. Absolutely hated her. On the other side, there's a story about John Wesley. He was traveling in a coach with an officer. The officer was easy to talk to, but had one drawback. He cussed like a sailor. We don't know if he was a sailor or not, but we do know he cussed like one. When they changed vehicles, Wesley took the officer aside, and after expressing pleasure, he had uh, expressing the pleasure he had in his company, the enjoyment he had in his company. He said he had a great favor to ask. The young officer replied, "I will take great pleasure in obliging you, for I am sure you will not make an unreasonable request." Then said Wesley. As we have to travel together some distance, I beg that if I should so forget myself and swear, you will kindly reprove me. The officer immediately saw the motive, felt the force of the request, and smiled and said, none but Mr. Wesley could have conceived a reproof in such a manner. And it worked like a charm. Why? Because Wesley used grace, and so should we. <clears throat> Verse 6. Now if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. It's so easy to start, if you're serious about God and want to please Him, as, as your efforts to, to do that, to, to live an obedient life, it's very easy to start leaning on those works and not on God. So verse 6 says, grace ceases to be grace. And 7, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. Israel, in their focus on works, didn't find what they are looking for. What was that? Peace with God. But the elect did find it. How? By trusting in God. The rest, he says, were hardened. As it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. It seemed We're seeing that now. 
walk on the street, right? This is what we're talking about. Not necessarily phones, but oblivious to the world around them, oblivious to reality. That is, this is the sad state of those who reject God. situation it is and it's only by the grace of God when someone blinders are torn from them they go oh I'm a sinner my heart isn't right with God if I die and it's not right with God I'm going to end up going to hell I need to fix this I want to be in a right relationship with God I want to be pleasing to him I want to confess my sins to God and, and, and ask for forgiveness and, and, and obey Him and follow Him and, and follow Jesus who, who's my Lord and who died for me and, and was resurrected again. I, I want to do that. That is only by the grace of God. I have yet to meet one person who came to Christ because they were smart. I've seen a lot, a lot of smart people get in their own way of coming to Christ because they're really good at coming up with rationalizations for believing what they want to believe. Verse 11, I asked then, have they stumbled so as to fall, as a complete annihilation? They're done. It's over. Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Is there no hope for Israel? No. There is hope for Israel. In fact, uh, Israel rejecting the gospel, there's, there's, it's part of the plan. God worked it in and made it part of the plan for salvation. Because the Israel rejected it, it, it came out to the Gentiles, all of us who are not Jewish. The gospel came to us. Paul hopes that it will encourage Jewish apostates to come to God. See a Gentile, they'll go, Whoa, they have something I don't. I'm following the Torah, I'm 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 eating what I'm supposed to eat and 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 celebrating all the, the, the feasts and, and the fasts and, and doing all that and and obeying the Sabbath. I don't have what they have. Verse 12, now if their transgression brings riches for the world, their, rich, their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? If Jewish rejection has brought this much value to the world, consider what it will bring Israel becomes a Christian nation.
And Paul says in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. That's us. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. What does he mean by that? He's saying, I, I take my ministry, my mission seriously. This is of utmost importance. I don't use the word magnify that, that often. But we're lifting, this is serious, this is important to magnify something. Verse 14, if I somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. <clears throat> Jesus here is symbolizes as, as a vine. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. That's what Paul is talking about. Each person is a branch tapped into the vine. And some branches rejected Christ and were broken off from that union. And those of us who came to Christ were, were grafted in, grafted into Christ. But we're not better than those who rejected God. And it goes on, but if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. It is Christ who sustains us. We have no reason to boast. It's Christ who sustains us, not the other way around. Verse 19, then you will say, branches are, were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. You're, you're connected because you're trusting in God. That is the only way to stay connected to the Lord, is to keep trusting in Him. Christians over time can become to can come to distrust God. We have to be aware of that. Watchful of our own thoughts and attitudes and actions so we don't begin distrusting God. Some signs of distrusting God are picking and choosing scriptures to abide by. Blaming God when things don't go your way. Blaming your lack of faith on your humanity. As a way of dismissing it. You allow fear to dominate your life. Maybe you wonder if Jesus really loves you. Perhaps you embrace hate and unforgiveness. These are all signs that you're beginning or have already started distrusting God. 
Continuing in verse 20, do not be arrogant, but beware. Watch out, he says. We should fear because we are prone to drift from justification by faith alone into justification by works. I've seen it. I've seen people who love the Lord and they're serious about it and they've drifted into legalism. And, they, and over time, their personal charity, their love for others has, has dried up. as long as you're wearing the right clothes and doing the right things verse 21 because of we're to beware because if God did not spare the natural branches he will not spare you either God is gracious to repentant sinners, but will not abide rebellion. And God will deal with us if we begin to falter. Verse 22, therefore consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but... God's kindness toward you if you remain in his kindness. That is our responsibility, to remain in his kindness. How do we do that? By continually trusting in him and acting like we do trust him, acting like we do believe him. We do believe the Bible. The Bible's true. If the Bible's true, then it's going to drive certain actions and behaviors on your part. If you see, if you don't really... If, if you dismiss the Bible and, and, and act like, well, it may or may not be true, and maybe it's not having to do with me. I've heard people say, well, that was, that was regardless of something going on back then. It doesn't apply to now. Those are all dangerous thoughts. And we no longer are remaining in God's kindness. And Paul continues in the last clause of verse 22. If you remain, let me repeat it. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, if you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. It reminded me of Revelation chapter 2. If we just go there real quick. Begin with verse 1, write to the angel of the Lord in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the work she did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Notice that Jesus starts out by saying, I have been watching you. I know what good you're doing. 
was a bad thing to do any of that stuff. What he, he pointed out, Ephesus had forgotten the love they, they first had with Christ. That excitement, that, that drive, that want to please the Lord, that want to tell other people about Jesus, that reality, that love of, of God and of Christ that you have when you're first saved, and over time it starts to dry up, it starts to get cold and be, be easy just to dismiss and take for granted. And Jesus said, you need to fix this. Or there's going to be consequences. Back to Romans chapter 11. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. Because God has the power to graft them in again. Did you get that? And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. Because God has the power to graft them in again. That right there is hope for the backslider. It's so much easier you can say it the first time and get your heart right with God the first time. But if you allow yourself to, to, to grow cold with God and, and to start getting back into the, the, the sin lifestyle that you had before, it's so much harder. Why? Because the devil whispers in your ear. He says things like, God's not going to accept you. You failed him. You can't do this. A joke. God's done with you. All kinds of lies that are not true at all. Because the truth is, God is more than happy to graft you back in and be in a right relationship with you again. All you have to do is surrender to Him. That's wonderful news. Because we're dumb. And we make bad decisions. And we're prone to sin. And we're thick-headed. And sometimes lessons take years to, to really learn and figure out. God is more than happy to you know, pick us up and say, okay, let's try this again. As long as we don't say, God, I'm done with you. I want to live life my own way, do my own thing. That's wonderful news. Verse 24, for if you're cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in their own olive tree? You see, Gentile believers must not yield to the temptation to disrespect the Jewish people. If it had not been for the grace of God, Gentiles would never have been grafted into the life of God, which the Jews enjoyed. The new life which enables them to 
produce fruit grows from the same root that the old stock of Israel grows. Verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn the godless away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I want to point out a couple things uh, on these two verses, 25, 26, 27, three verses. First off, Paul says he doesn't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. He doesn't, he doesn't say he's going to explain the mystery. And why doesn't he want us to be ignorant of it? Because knowing it will help us to not be conceited about our success with God versus the people, uh, the people of Israel. And what is that mystery? Is for a while there, there, there's a, a hardening against God. But at some point there's going to come an end to the time of the Gentiles. And there's going to be a revival in Israel. A spectacular revival. The reason it's a mystery is we don't know how all that's supposed to work. Or why God's doing it that way. But it helps us kind of keep a proper perspective on things. Verse 28 Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding the election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and callings are irrevocable. So God hardened their hearts for our benefit, uh, but God's going to preserve them. Why? Because God is the ultimate promise keeper. And he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to keep that promise. Verse 30, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy in all. We're all chained in sin, and God has mercy on us all. Then he starts his hymn of praise. We're almost done. Starts his hymn of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things be the glory forever. Wow. That's a good hymn to sing for morning devotions. William Beebe was an explorer and a friend of, of Tom, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt. Often when he visited the president, the two men would go outdoors at night to see who would 
first locate the Andromeda galaxy. Then as they gazed at the tiny smudge in the distant starlight, one of them would recite, that is a spiral galaxy of Andromeda, Andromeda. I know I was saying it wrong, Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And after they would recite that, Roosevelt would smile and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. We now know that Andromeda is 2.6 million light years away and consists of one trillion stars, about twice the number of our galaxy. And while the numbers are only estimates and they keep getting larger, astronomers think that there are at least 100 to 200 billion galaxies, not 100 million like they like. Roosevelt and his friend thought. A German supercomputer simulation recently put that number at 500 billion galaxies. Even Roosevelt would feel even smaller. As the Apostle Paul sums up Romans 11 in our text, he wants us to feel appropriately small in the presence of the sovereign God who moves all of history to his unfathomable ways for his own glory. And I'll finish with, uh, on, on that note, if you want to feel appropriately small, in the unfathomable presence of the sovereign God, uh, Daryl Stetler is is redoing his series called Made. He did it nine years ago. It's actually the first series that our church participated in, and it's a wonderful sermon series. It's all about creation and just amazing stuff that he's put together. Um, and it will be available on YouTube, on the Oklahoma City Bible Methodist channel. Uh, and I encourage you to check that out and watch it for yourself. And then give God glory. Let's stand. Well, that's all for today. I hope it was a blessing to you. I do have one more thing to add. Uh, I have recently published a book entitled Stop Poisoning Yourself, Finding Joy in All Circumstances. Few of us realize the impact our, our thoughts have on our daily lives, how it impacts our emotions, our relationships, including our relationship with God. Uh, in this book, I, I go through this very short, easy to read book. I go through what the Bible says about it, how and what we can do uh, to eliminate poisonous thoughts in our lives. So to, if you're interested, go check it out on Ken, uh, Amazon Kindle's website. You'll find it there. Just search for Stop Poisoning Yourself.
by Daryl Underwood. Enjoy your week. Have a wonderful day.